This is an exclusive for subscribers of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and for fans of our latest investigative podcast, The Last Voyage of the Pong Su. In episode five of the series, we hear from Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis, two men who were part of the Special Air Service Regiment tasked with the dramatic capture of the Pong Su. Both men come from military families, and both wound up in the SAS. In 2003, Tim was the executive officer of the counter-terrorism squadron, and Ben served under him. A hostile boarding like the Pong Su one can be very dangerous. The crew on a ship like this could be carrying guns or have North Korean special operatives on board. So the Australian troops were on high alert as they set foot on the deck of the ship. In this extended interview, you'll hear about what happened before, during and after this dramatic operation, as well as Tim and Ben's memories of the infamous Tamper affair of 2001 and of other conflicts overseas. I spoke to Tim and Ben remotely from Melbourne, while they were in Perth. I started by asking Ben about the bonds that form between soldiers, especially in dangerous situations. This is something that humans have done since day one. I mean, this idea of some kind of common shared hardship that you you get through um, with with a group of people and uh, serves as a as a unifying factor. It's a it's a pretty powerful thing, and you'll you'll see it a lot in you know selection criteria for sports teams. Obviously, our selection course serves as one, um, and so these kind of um, I guess unity through shared hardship uh, type bonds are very strong. Um, so I think there's a psychological aspect. There's certainly, um, and in the SAS regiment, a very physical aspect. I remember um, on our selection course doing all these, you know, the classic ridiculous activities. You're, you're carrying super heavy stuff up a super steep hill and you've got to have someone out in front who can't carry anything because he's got to look out for the enemy. And you think it's just essentially uh, institutionalised bastardization. But um, my very first patrol in Afghanistan, we had a six-man patrol. We'd just resupplied. We were carrying about 64 kilos of equipment each, and our signaler rolled his ankle and couldn't walk. And so to get him to an extraction point, we had to carry these ridiculously heavy bits of kit um, up and down these ridiculous hills with one person that couldn't carry anything and one person that was out on security. And so it was a real crystallizing moment for me because I knew that this was going to suck, there was no um, no doubt about that. It was an unpleasant night ahead. But I knew that every single person um, that was, was there in that patrol had already done something like this. They knew in their heads that they could just keep putting one foot in front of the other, and we all knew that each one of us would, would continue going. The Pongsu wasn't your first at-sea boarding. I imagine SAS has done quite a bit, given um, Australia's uh, being an island nation and things like that. But... The Tampa in 2001, that was probably, that's probably still the most famous and well-known example of, um, of a boarding at sea involving Australian personnel that I can think of. Yeah. What was that like? It was exhilarating. I mean, that was probably the, the first real activity I'd done. I was a young troop commander um, and not dissimilar to the Pong Su, you know, there's something evolving on Sky News and then all of a sudden the, the phones in the office ring and you're you're thrust into the middle of it. And we, we sort of screamed in, we were we were geared up for anything, you know, for, for worst case, and obviously had a tactical plan um, to, to board the vessel. 
And um, as it turned out, as we, we screamed up, you know, ready to sort of establish ladders and, and charge this thing like pirates, um, the boarding ladder was lowered to us, which was a little anticlimactic, you know, we're ready to, to take this thing, but no, that's okay. So we climb up this boarding ladder and we're expected to be met with, you know, AK-47s and, and angry um, sort of hostage takers. But the very first person we saw was a, a gorgeous five-foot Scandinavian blonde in a pristine um, uniform who, who sort of said, come this way, gentlemen, and walked us to an elevator. And we, we got in the elevator and headed up towards the bridge. And I don't actually think there was elevator music in the elevator, but I, my memory sort of has painted that in. You know, we're, we're all dressed up in black, ready to storm this thing. It was like a scene out of the Blues Brothers. We're sort of in this elevator, uh, taking very, um, uh, very peacefully up to the bridge and, and got a very um, coherent brief from the, the crew up there. It was, was not as bad as our, our intelligence had painted it to be. The main point being it, it was resolved without too much cost to, um, you know, hum, in terms of human suffering and, and things like that. Yeah, 100%. And look, I, I my personal view, the, the um, Arnie Renan, the, the captain and, and Christian, the first mate, um, did an extremely honourable thing in, in what they, they did. Um, as I understand, it was, was kind of against the laws of the sea. They probably should have taken them back to, I think, Surabaya. But they, they made the decision that, that these people would be better off uh, heading to Christmas Island. And so I think they'd made a, a, a very humane decision. And uh, certainly our efforts very quickly switched from uh, this idea that we'd have to retake a, a hostile vessel to um, provision of medical support. Tim, can I, can I ask you about what you were doing when you the Pong Su came into the picture and the prospect that you guys might have to, at short notice, come across to the East Coast. Yeah, so it's just before Easter 2003, and we were actually closing up the, the counter-terrorist uh, special recovery squadron before the Easter break, and um, I was called up to regimental headquarters, and the then acting commanding officer, he said, uh, Tim... A North Korean drug vessel has just put some drugs ashore at a place called Lawn in Victoria and a dead body has washed up on shore wrapped in kelp. Uh, I need you to prepare a component of the squadron to go and board and seize that vessel. And that was about all of the guidance we, we got. The vessel had started moving um, from Victoria in an easterly direction and we knew that for the most part we would need to wait for Air Force to fly uh, at least one, probably two aircraft from the east coast of Perth to pick us up with all of our equipment. Um, but what we didn't realise is that there was a real-time imperative um, and while we were standing there doing some preliminary planning, one of the movement clerks walked in and handed us uh, Qantas tickets and said your flight's in about an hour and so we had to move very quickly as a tactical command group a small group of us jumped in the car drove out to the airport and jumped on the Qantas flight from Perth direct into Sydney. We were down in about row 34F and uh, we actually didn't have much intelligence and we can certainly talk to the absence of an intelligence picture leading into that. We, we knew what the vessel looked like. We had seen a picture. We didn't know much about anything else except it was outside the capability 
of state and federal law enforcement to, to seize the vessel. And uh, as we were down the blunt end of the aircraft, uh, our tactical planning commenced in the back of the in-flight Qantas magazine using the map and and we were drawing up some options that we uh, wanted to present later that evening when we walked into Headquarters Special Operations. Is Headquarters Special Operations, is that in Sydney? At the time it was in Sydney, yeah. In fact, quite um, coincidentally, but beautifully co-located with Maritime Headquarters back in 2003. And so it certainly made the coordination between the two headquarters incredibly easy. Not to mention the the boarding. I mean, the the vessels were alongside it. Yeah, so Fleet Fleet Base East um, was the home of HMAS Stewart, which was an on-call frigate that was you know, staffed, manned, equipped, um, ready to go. Um, but actually, when we developed those courses of action, I we knew that the, the conditions, particularly the sea state, the weather, the whole meteorological piece was not going to work to our advantage. It was forecast to be really bad weather and a sea state um, of six. And so the, the, the preferred option that we drew up was a, a full helicopter assault force out of somewhere on the East Coast, which we'd done before, um, you know, before the Olympics and also during the Olympics. And we had um, our sights set on using Blackhawks, a whole squadron of them in essence, to fly from the east coast out to the Pongsu, uh, rope onto the deck, complete the mission, and then come back in on the vessel. Um, at that point, I just started seeing my now wife, and um, we were supposed to pick her up from the airport that evening um, for the, the Easter holidays, and it was going to be the first time I met her parents, and I, I had to make this sort of very rushed, awkward phone call as we were heading to the aeroplane. Um, that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to pick you up. And she sort of said, why not? I said, I've got to go away. She said, well, where are you going? I said, I can't tell you. When are you going to be back? I can't tell you. When will I see you? I can't see you. know, so it was this sort of um, awkward thing with this girl I was trying to court and, and I obviously didn't make a, a very good impression on her parents mm. that first time. But Punctuate's a really good point. And that's just normal for an SAS guy um, to leave family friends at zero notice and they don't know when they're coming back and probably even worse still they don't really even know where they're going and then you've just got to hope that uh, in in your example Ben that the, that the girl's still around so you can actually tell her and and your prospective father-in-law a hell of a story when you get home <laughs> exactly yeah it was touch and go for and the good news is she is still around she they, is. they're now married with two children <laughs> And I've put her through through a lot of similar sort of yeah I'm, I'm staggered she's still around she's very very understanding my wife no, she must she must be good good on her one question I had then so you're you're going across at very short notice you're drawing up your plans in the back of the Qantas magazine how do you get your weapons across yeah well so we still believed at that point as we were flying across uh, the Nullarbor and there's only a small group of us as an advance party that key tactical planning component but we still believed that Air Force would bring the rest of the squadron and I think it wasn't until we landed in Sydney did we realise that the rest of the force element um, was flying out on the Qantas Red Eye that night to be in Sydney about 6am the following morning with all weapons and personal equipment. There were some items that uh, unfortunately we couldn't take because they were oversized, um, you know, too long, too bulky. But all weapons, personal equipment and team equipment, 
and all the people came out from Perth on that red eye um, to meet the the frigate the following morning. So then we're in we're in Sydney. You're you I guess you're meeting um, people like Commodore uh, David Greaves, who was the commanding officer in charge of the HMAS Stewart, and your best laid plans to do this via helicopter obviously ain't going to work because of the weather. Um, so what's that like adapting to Plan B? Yeah, well, we we actually walked into Headquarters Special Operations, I think it was about 2am. Um, we'd come up with some courses of action, still, incidentally, in the Qantas flight, in-flight magazine, and, and we prese- presented our preferred course of action being the Helicopter Assault Force um, to Duncan Lewis, who was then Commander um, Special Operations Command, and and he he said no he wasn't comfortable with that particular plan and uh, and for for some good reasons and so the our- actual vessel was all over the place i mean it it was clearly in an evasive pattern it was heading out to sea it was coming back in um and there was concern even in our planning about the the reach the ability to launch from a, a shore uh, a, a shore forward operating base and so yeah, well, while it wasn't preferred, we, we could understand the rationale, I guess. Yeah, and, and we had practised not just for that helicopter assault force, but also for maritime um, special recovery operations off the vessel. So adapting to Plan B wasn't particularly challenging. And, and that particular plan was to board the frigate, use the frigate as a forward operating base of sorts, and then use embarked assets that is the frigate's organic seahawk helicopter and rigid inflatable boats and execute a combined helicopter assault force and boat assault force um, assault onto the Ponsu to board and seize it. Uh, The squadron arrived I think at 6am alongside that was a couple of large trucks with ammunition and explosives Um, all the guys and girls boarded the frigate we'd completed some basic tactical planning between the two components the special ops component and the maritime component and the conditions right from the outset as we came out of sydney heads was proving to be our worst nightmare horrendous we've seen some of the footage um, we've got some of the footage from the new south wales police boat fearless which was um pursuing the pong su and until it could sort of pass the baton over to the steward and it just looked um un- unbelievable really well, we were feeling quite sorry for ourselves until we saw the police vessel tailing this huge grain carrier, which the Pongsu was, and then we kind of thought, you know, we haven't got life too bad on this very large frigate. Uh, in contrast, their boat was tiny and getting thrown about like a cork in a bathtub. What happens then in the lead-up? You're there, you've made, well, radio contact, obviously, with the Pongsu, and then um, the decision's made to come appear across the horizon when you guys are there and it's getting close to press the button time on this what's it feel like well rewinding a little bit so we we continued our tactical planning so a lot of that planning needed to happen before we closed with the Pongsu and the planning team you know Ben and and his principal tactical planner in particular worked super hard and non-stop for well, over 24 hours to come up with what we thought was going to be the best possible plan that we could execute to guarantee us getting onto the vessel and then the best possible plan to um, clear and secure the vessel and hand it over to the Australian Federal Police. 
One of the really interesting and very comforting things for me was the executive officer of HMAS Stewart was a gentleman by the name of Lee Goddard, and the whole of ship's crew um, were tremendous, but Lee and the CEO of the ship in particular were absolutely unbelievable in allowing us access to anything and everything. And as most of your listeners will know, on a warship, in fact, on any Navy vessel, the wardroom or where the officers take their um, take their break, take their meals, that is held sacrosanct. And they handed that over to us, a bunch of, you know, black suit wearing grubby SAS guys for our tactical planning space and briefing space. So it, they were they were unbelievable. It sounds like that environment you're describing, and from my research and what I know, that so many different resources, I guess, of the Australian government come together in that period to make this interception happen. Had you ever seen so many resources from so many different parts of the government combining like this? I think Special Operations Command is is very joint by nature, so we do tend to do a lot of work with other government departments, agencies, and of course um, across the three services. Um, this was unique because our force package, relatively speaking, was quite small, reasonably disproportionate, but we did have access to so many different things. We've talked about the police and integrating um, the police component of the plan. We had improvised explosive um, disposal teams, uh, helicopters, uh, tactical boat drivers, which we took from our own team, as well as Coast Watch aircraft. And we had our own um, intelligence staff and their access into uh, the intelligence community to inform our considerations as part of the tactical plan was was really impressive. In terms of the specific boarding, I was really interested in this provision uh, to you guys of some last-minute intelligence warning that there was a possibility of North Korean special forces being on board the Pong Su. Um, so we'd done the preparation, we'd come up with the tactical plan, as Tim mentioned, and then one of the last things we did in that preparatory phase was a, a rehearsal. So we, we actually did a, a pretty much a full dry run of, of synchronising the, the boats and the helicopter. Um, and it went okay, but it really highlighted that um, there, there were a number of significant concerns about this plan, uh, not least of which was the, the sea state. The, the small craft had real dramas establishing ladders um, back onto the, the steward as it was, as the, the practice target vessel. Um, and we, and I can't remember exactly, I think we had 12 or 13 people in the back of that Seahawk. Now, if you've seen the back of a Seahawk, it's designed for about two or three people. But because we were so concerned about the ability of the boat assault force to establish um, entry, we we weighted the, the helicopter assault force. So we were jammed in there. And I do remember thinking that, you know, if this helicopter goes down, um, then not many of us will be getting out. And so it was a pretty sombre sort of uh, atmosphere after the rehearsal, given that those things were playing heavily on our mind and we were looking at at launching before or at first light the next day. Um, Into that atmosphere was injected this last-minute intelligence (laughs) um, brief, which sort of said, given a number of factors and our analysis indicates that this is a very abnormal vessel um, and uh, historical precedent is that, that there will be North Korean special forces on this. Um, I seem to recall they cited a case in Japan where 
a similar vessel had uh, fired uh, onto Japanese Coast Guard um, in a, a similar sort of boarding event. So on the back of this uncertainty about whether we can get on with our boats and, and you know, the fact we were jammed like sardines in the back of this Seahawk, uh, came this overlay of intelligence that, um, that you know, we're probably going to get uh, an opposed boarding, which which made it a pretty sombre sort of um, sort of environment. It, as a funny postscript, I mean, one of the, the indicators that they'd used in making their assessment was um, the, the aerial imagery had shown a, a very sophisticated antenna array at the back of the, um, of the, the superstructure, the bridge, uh, which they thought for sure meant this was a, a spy ship, you know, very sophisticated um, electronic warfare uh, vessel. Um, when we later cleared it, we found that that was actually a washing line complete with the, the captain's underwear pinned up onto it. So bad intelligence. <laughs> yeah, I guess, it, I guess it would be a relief when you go on and, and the worst you find is some, uh, some dodgy undies. Yeah, and, you know, you can, I guess you can make yourself believe anything, but we, uh, during the assault and, and particularly when we were um, getting all the detainees together, there were some of those kids were not like the others you know there were what were very clearly just merchant seamen sort of really scared shitless by the whole uh, process and there were a couple that we we thought were were a bit more steely-eyed a bit more uh, I guess um, uh, you know disciplined and and um, less intimidated by the whole process which certainly seemed to indicate some level of training. When the North Korean Special Operations piloted vessel engaged the Japanese Coast Guard, they did it with a 50 calibre machine gun. And um, that was probably the worst case scenario, maybe with one exception, a rocket propelled grenade that we could confront. Because the reality of a Seahawk is that it doesn't have any armour, no real defensive measures, and it wouldn't take a 50 calibre machine gun to bring that. Um, to bring that aircraft down, it would probably take nothing more than a nine millimetre pistol, well aimed. And so, what, with the benefit of hindsight and maybe thinking this through over the course of a decade, I think inevitably they're losing two guys in lawn, one killed and one arrested, had degraded the capability to that particular, um, you know, to an extent where they just weren't that interested in doing anything and perhaps thought that the implication of, of, of shooting at a helicopter or any of the assault force just probably wasn't worth it. Um, we know that they threw items overboard. We, we were observing them throwing things overboard. There was no way to recover any of those items. So with the law of probability considered, I think it was implausible that there wouldn't have been North Korean Special Operations Forces on board the Pongsu. One one thing I picked up was the mention of a phone call from the PM. Is that how these things work? Is like we know in the TV in the in in the US, for example, in the Situation Room, and the President gives the order to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and they, you know, go go go, and you can hear it out, you know, in the battlefield or wherever they are. That that's the way it works in in TV and the movies. Is a phone call from the PM a thing, a normal thing to for the word go on these sort of operations? Yeah, so the National Security Committee of Cabinet in a counterterrorism operation has as its principal advisor the Special Operations Commander or uh, their designated representative. And so the, the call from the bridge of the Stuart was actually to um, Duncan Lewis. 
who was sitting, as I understand it, in the same room as the Prime Minister. And he asked some basic questions, made sure that um, principally the Navy had followed the right protocols before boarding and then asked for an opinion over on whether the Pongsu would heave to and allow um, you know, an unopposed boarding. At that stage, we had tried everything that we could to peacefully board it and easily board it. Um, and it became clear that the captain of the Pongsu wasn't going to permit that. So that's when the authorisation came. Certainly in the, the Tampa, it was a very similar thing. We were sitting on Christmas Island very much geared to go, literally standing in the boats. Our squadron commander was next to us. Um, he, he had uh, a phone in one hand that was going to our special operations commander who was reported to have a phone in one ear to, to us at Christmas Island and a phone in the other ear to the Prime Minister. And then um, as the the uh, Tampa, um, I think it was crossing that, that 12 nautical mile uh, limit, that was the, the trigger from the Prime Minister to say, no, we need to launch, and it was relayed direct, sort of <laughs> using that two-star general as a, as a bit of a post box, um, but through him to, to us on the ground, and we launched very rapidly after he gave the word. Wow. I've seen the video the AFP took of the Pongsu crew when they were all gathered in the galley and separate from the one or two young guys with a bit of spunk, most of the crew do look pretty like a, a bunch of guys who are shell-shocked going, what the hell is going on? I actually feel sorry for them. What do you feel when you're there? I know you've got your adrenaline pumping from the job. Does it take long for that to die down and then realise, I guess, these guys, are some most of them are pretty poor saps? No, I mean, I think we do a lot of training in that, that whole identification of threat piece, particularly in those um, close quarter battle type situations. And so I think very rapidly you you sort of ascertain um, that identification friend, foe, identification of threat. And regardless, I mean, you, you're detaining everyone um, throughout that process. So it, it was very clear. I mean, the you wouldn't have seen in that footage um, the captain because he'd had a heart attack by that stage on the bridge as a result of all of this. And so, yeah, a, a lot of these people, as was the case subsequently in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, there's a ton of collateral people caught up in these events that didn't ask to be there, didn't know about it, didn't want to be there. And, yeah, you do feel a lot of empathy for them um, that are, are caught up in a pretty stressful environment. Can you just take us to the action point? So when the helicopter, when the Seahawk is launched um, and talk through that bit from being up and then coming down that other end of the rope, you know, that thing that, that changed your uh, your ambition from being in the Air Force and being a pilot to being the person at the end of the rope. Um, it, in fact, I'd never thought of it like that, but it's a, a nice little bookend, I guess, from that, that uh, lecture room in RMC. Um, we'd made the decision that um, we, we had to go through that force of escalation. We had to give the Pongsu one final chance to heave to, but we wanted to have uh, an emergency action, a very rapid response ready uh, in the event that she didn't, which we, we figured she wouldn't. And so we launched the Seahawk um, with us all sort of crammed in the fetal position, wedged in sort of <laughs> vertically and horizontally in, into every crack of this helicopter. And we'd, uh, we launched that thing over the horizon. So this was um, before the sun came up. They, the Pongsu would have seen the, the helicopter launch but would have seen it fly away over the horizon. 
We then uh, lowered the um, rigid hulled inflatable boats, the the small craft, um, onto the lee side of the Stuart. So we believed that the Pongsu wouldn't have seen those. Um, the Stuart crew went through their escalation, and I, I think some of that is captured in. in I've seen footage of them uh, calling the Pongsu to heave to, and uh, it refuses to. And so we're given the authority to launch. Um, once that, that trigger was met, as, as Tim mentioned, the authority was given from um, the, the National Security Committee and I passed the initiation code word, which was Valhalla now, go, go, go. So at that point, the, the Seahawk sped in over the horizon, synchronised with the boats breaking from the lee of the, um, the Stuart and heading in. And I remember from my, my cramped fetal position, I mean, you can imagine this is a, a fairly um, adrenaline-filled sort of moment. So we're ready to go. Um, the loadmaster's telling us how close we are. We've got 30 seconds. At that point, I look down and I'm, we're screaming over the, um, the boats who are heading in exactly the same direction towards the vessel. Um, and we, we came across the vessel. The, the helicopter pilot, the Seahawk pilot, was nothing short of incredible. Um, pulled this thing up in a very hard flare. And it's at this point that, that normally as soon as the helicopter stabilises, the fast ropes are dispatched and people start um, uh, assaulting as quickly as possible. Um, but it took a long time to get into a, a decent hover. And the reason for that was there was a number of very prominent cargo derricks and the the ship was... was um, I think static or moving very slowly, but certainly rolling in the, the high seas. And these derricks were, were swinging really violently. And so the, the Seahawk captain, to get us actually on a roping point, had to get in between these pitching derricks, um, which he eventually managed to do, but it, it took a lot of time. Uh, we eventually dispatched the ropes. I was super glad to get onto that um, that fast rope. I think I was about the second out. I probably shouldn't have been as the commander, but I just wanted to get out of that that helicopter. Um, and all of a sudden, we we're on the deck. But the the interesting thing was the the helicopter assault fo- force had been allocated the task of seizing the bridge. We figured that was the most likely force to get on board, and so they got the most important task. But in the process of establishing that hover, um, we burned up so much time that the boat assault force through some absolutely incredible small craft handling from a, a guy who, who Tim later wrote up for an award. Um, but they actually managed to get alongside, establish ladders and get onto the, the vessel. And so very rapidly they were able to reorientate from their um, initial plan, which was to go down to the engine room. They'd recognised that the bridge hadn't been seized and so they pushed straight up to the bridge and were able to seize the bridge, I think, before we, we'd even sort of got on the deck which was super embarrassing for us. They didn't let us forget that, as you could imagine. But um, it, it meant we, we had control of the vessel and were able to then go into the full vessel clearance after that point. So just tying that off and, and the Pong Su, then you guys accompany, I guess the, there's a convoy going back into Garden Island. What do you do when you finish? I mean, I imagine there's a debrief, but then how do you, how do you guys let off a bit of steam? This is the operational security that we don't want to breach, Richard. Yeah, so we there's a very formal handover process um, which we executed with the Australian Federal Police. So they were winched on board. Uh, we then um, went through that process and handed over control of the vessel to them. We clearly stayed to provide the security and we steamed back into Sydney and that took many hours. Um, 
In fact, in the process of steaming, one of the fascinating things that we haven't spoken about before, Ben, was their communication setup. So most modern ships have satellite communications. Well, the Pongsu didn't. It had a um, high-frequency radio system, and it was constantly receiving Morse code, um, which as a carrier wave signal is the a very efficient long-distance form of communications. And uh, I actually radioed back to the steward and said, send me your best Morse operator. And um, a petty officer was winched on board. I said, how good is your Morse? He said, we don't really use Morse anymore. It's, it's rusty. I said, stand in this communications room. Here's a notebook. Don't touch anything and record everything that you possibly can that's being transmitted. And it was just this constant stream of Morse code. I came back a few minutes later and said, how are you going? He said, they are transmitting so fast that I can't even copy um, down what's being written, you know, such as the, the use of the effective use of, of Morse um, from North Korea. But yeah, no, we, we handed over to the Australian Federal Police. We then sanitised all of our gear. We had trunks shipped across um, so we could get changed in Navy uniforms and uh, put all of our weapons and tactical gear into trunks and disguised them off. There was a large media signature helicopters actually at Sydney Heads when we steamed back in um, and we brought the Pongsu into Garden Island. Um, there's quite a couple of famous photographs of of the team coming off at Garden Island, including um, assisting the Federal Police in escorting escorting off the, um, the then suspects. Um, and one of those photos actually was on the front page of The Australian the following day. Mm. So how do we blow off steam? Uh, yeah, there is a debrief, uh, but actually first and foremost, the, the first thing that you do is you clean weapons and equipment, um, which is what we did in a warehouse on Garden Island. I think we were surrounded by some pizzas and perhaps a beer or two. Um, and then we, we captured some lessons learned as a debrief because the next day we were flowing into inter-component debriefs, including with Maritime Command. Um, and then, to the best of my recollection, we went straight to the Cavelli, Cavelli Coogee Bay, Bay Hotel. It's it's funny. I mean, it, it sounds, I guess, politically incorrect, and there's, there's a lot of focus on uh, alcohol within the Defence Force and I think in society generally at the moment. But there is something about um, that ability post a... a particularly stressful and unusual event to normalise what's happened. Now, whether that involves beer or not uh, is probably immaterial, but traditionally Australians tend to to have a drink. But I certainly strongly believe that, um, you know, in places like that, and obviously Afghanistan and Iraq, there's, there's different prohibitions on drinking, but that ability to decompress immediately debrief informally and normalise what you've seen with people who have shared the same experience is critically important. I think it's a really positive thing. I I, I firmly believe that it sort of uh, helps um, people come to grips with uh, some fairly unusual and oftentimes emotional, traumatic or, or disturbing sort of experiences. It's far cry from what, what you guys have been through, but I think a lot of people can relate to that, even if they look back through you know, their own sports and things like that. Often the most memorable things you have from your time playing team sports is that 20, 30 minutes after a game and that's been a really hard-fought thing and you're just with your teammates and you're having a shower and you've got that beer and you're just reflecting over what's gone on in the last two hours or day of cricket or whatever it is. 
that's actually not the action on the field that it's that memory of that shared experience and um, they're the things that you kind of look back on and go, oh, geez, I enjoyed that 20 minutes. It's it's not a celebration. It's a reflection. Um, and Ben talked about some of the values inside the SAS regimen. I, I think one of, one of, if not the overriding key value is classless sense of family and that rankless society in which we lived and worked. Um, it, it's key to socialise a little bit in that also understand that where we started from you know doing some tactical planning on the in the back of the in-flight magazine without our preferred helicopters without our preferred boats with some borrowed equipment because we it wouldn't fit in the Qantas hold against the weather last minute changing intelligence um, sometimes seasick the whole time yeah that's right you know we we had teams that were building explosive charges in pairs um, one would work for a few minutes, throwing up into a garbage bag um, next to him, and then would tag tag the mate who would who would come over and and take over whilst um, that person rolled up in the fetal position. There was the seasickness was horrendous, and you know water SAS water troops in particular are very marinized. <laughs> we um, one funny example: my communicator, my signaller. Um, got violently sick as soon as we left the heads and and so this poor guy was uh, down at the the very base of the vessel sort of right along the keel which was apparently the bit that was least nauseating um on a drip uh for about 12 or 18 hours i guess um and so we he, we didn't see him since we left the heads and then we just finished the assault and he came back on the radio this is india charlie i'm 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 back i'm good to go and it's like mate you've missed it <laughs> but yeah he was, he was debilitated for the whole lot but important to be able to process that and and use you know what you call a debrief as an opportunity for some decompression i think that's that's critical yeah, I guess he. I guess you, mate. There, the he didn't have the uh, quite the same story as others to go home and tell the uh, girlfriend and the family. Oh, I reckon he's probably made one up to, to to make up for it. You can hear more from Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis on their own podcast, The Unforgiving Sixty. This has been a subscriber exclusive for Age and Sydney Morning Herald subscribers. Thanks for your ongoing support.